This is Philosophy versus Improv, where two sages try to teach each other a thing or two, and maybe you, the audience, get something out of it as well. My name is Bill Arnett, an improv instructor, excited about philosophy. I'm Mark Linsenmeyer, an improv instructee, supposedly teaching philosophy. <laughs> and our special guest today, Jay, introduce yourself. I'm Jay Sanders. I'm an actor with no discernible talent whatsoever, but I make use of it on a, on a daily basis and I'm paid professionally for it. <laughs> what is your background in improv? Was that part of your actor's training? Yes. I would say my actor's training came with everything. I'm very literature-based originally, but I also created a lot of things and I worked in many forms. So I've done a lot of classics. I've done a lot of new plays. I've done a lot of creating theater. And back in college, I studied with George Morrison, who is a Viola Spolin teacher from Chicago. Mm-hmm. And, Big name uh, in the improv world. Yeah, theater games. He taught us theater games in college, but also he directed me in other things that were script-based. So we made use of theater forms that were already givens and then going back into improv forms to open them up, if that makes sense. Makes sense to me. Yeah. The format of the show is such that Bill and I have each brought in a simple lesson in our respective disciplines that we're not just going to say up front, but we're going to try to burrow into the conversation over the next 45 minutes, an hour, whatever it is. And at the end of that, we will ask you, which of the two lessons has the most profound impact on the world? We have to gamify it somehow. We have to have a winner. So that can be very arbitrary, but just to prepare you, I've been accused of springing that on some guests at the last minute, assuming that they understood the format. So I have to have a referee's cap as, as well as a, an involvement cap? Yeah. Okay. All right. Do I need a striped shirt? Am I okay straight up? Yeah. Okay. I get a, you're a baseball umpire. You can get away with a little sport coat. And, uh, you know. okay. One of those big, thick front, uh, things yeah. in case the, the ball comes at me too fast. Yeah. I like in the old days when they had those formal umpires that would have the cigarette in the cigarette holder and they'd have the top hat and they'd, oh, strike. And it was just, they would kind of, it, it elevated the game. In a, and I'm sure it was the town doctor or pastor who was asked to be the umpire. They need someone they can trust, someone who has some, someone with a degree. That's all. Exactly. Anyone have a degree? Yeah. Right. Exactly. I am so confident in my philosophy lessons familiarity to you. I picked something that I'm not even going to start with it. Usually I throw it out there. I get us talking about it to orient us, but I feel like I want to build, take it, start us, start us on this improv journey, and I will wheedle (laughs) my topic in pretty soon. Are you ready for an amazing coincidence? I can't start the thing that I want to do for improv. (laughs) It is something that I need someone else to start. Oh, okay. Now, we didn't plan that. I'm not saying Jay needs to start. You can still start this thing, Mark. But Mm -hmm. the improv lesson I have is also a second. It's something that comes along rather than right off the bat. So what does this mean? (laughs) What does this mean? Do we just have Jay start talking and then we play on this? Or can you give him a, a direction to start a scene, for instance? I certainly can. Now, Jay, it's wonderful having you here and great to hear about your acting pedigree and whatnot. Boy, improv has sure has changed a ton since the days of Spolin. And now there's people doing whole improvised plays and shows that don't look like games or Spolin activities and look like plays. You probably know that and been exposed to that and can at least imagine, imagine what that would be. And that's the kind of improv we typically do here. Slice of life closer to 
what you might expect in a TV show or a movie than an ABC game or a uh, mirroring no. game. Yeah. Well, I should ask you, have you heard of Improvised Shakespeare? We've had people. From I have. I, I've heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, we're not going to do that. We're not going to try that. <laughs> but I tell you what, Jade, maybe to get us going, if you just want to say a line of dialogue that may be something you have said this last day or today, it doesn't need to be remarkable. In fact, even if it's somewhat unremarkable, that might actually give us a little bit of a little bit of leeway to create with it, if that makes sense. So anything you may have said, I, I see you're out of town. Is that correct? Or Yes, or, I'm out of town. I'm uh, out of town. I'm out of shorts. I'm out of mind. Uh, uh, I'm out of uh, ideas. Uh, anything you may have said to a passerby at a store, at a restaurant, in anywhere to get us going. I like to think that improv is for people who are at rock bottom, who are completely out of. <laughs> so perfect. Please proceed. Sir, I don't know you, but these bones are not mine. And yet I can see they are clearly human. Okay, those, those, bones, aren't, those bones aren't yours. Those I, human bones? I do not own them. They do not belong in or to my body. Okay, all right. Um, and you found these in your, these were in your room? These were, you're sure they're not your bones? Could they be your bones? Five minutes ago, there was someone standing here. Okay. About to say something profound to me. Okay. And when I came back to them with an answer, uh-huh. all that was there were bones. Wow. I don't, I don't want you to think we please don't blame the Hilton hotel chain on this. This is not that we don't have any kind of disintegrating ray or any, this is please just, I just want to get that out there. Well, um, given the room service quality, I'm surprised to think that you would not be uh, responsible. You've not been responsible for anything else. We, we can't. We can't turn someone into bones. <laughs> that's that, that's beyond. I ask for orange juice. I get apple juice. I ask okay. for butter. I get margarine. Well, I ask for help. I get a stack of bones. Well, that, that that's a, that's a big. I mean, someone could miss margarine and butter. That's but I mean, turning someone into. I'm just I'm just saying. So this man was this man a friend of yours or a guest or a stranger? Is it can be trying to find time to talk to find out? Excuse me, is this is this going to take long? I, I really just had a simple request. Do you guys have a, like a a special needs line? You know, for okay. people that so you have ha- more you just, elaborate. You, just, you have a, you have a simple request, sir. You have a simple request. Guess what? I'm working with a complex request right now. Someone has been turned into bones. All right, that sounds pretty simple. I mean, either you're going to clean it up, right? I mean, what's what's the issue? I was looking for larger towels for the pool, but uh, the, the bones thing really takes... You know, let's do this. Let's get larger towels. Boom. Maurice, can we get larger towels? Great. Sir, what's your request? I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, I was going to ask for some bones, but I, I, I see that you, already, you anticipated bones. my request before I could, even, I could even make it. Of course, I wasn't going to ask for bones. What do you think this is? What, why is this here? Why is this happening? You grind my bones to dust and you ask me why it's happening? Okay, everybody, here's the first thing I'm going to do. A, you are both getting a f- voucher for a free drink from the hotel bar. Let's say that right now. That's fair. Good, all right. Number two, Maurice, they've got your towels right now at the corner of the counter. I think that's great. I think this, we should involve the police. I think this is something that we need to get CSI in here if there are just bones appearing. All right. Can I just put it forth a, li- a little theory here? I have a lot of experience with this kind of thing. I'm, I'm a writer. And I've, I've seen that when there are bones, there was usually some sort of fall. Like there was usually some greatness, you know, because bones are sort of the, the kind of thing that you look at and you think about and you say, how great the mighty doth fall. To be clear, the man was short of stature. He was notably short to the point where I was going to say something, but I didn't want to be offensive. I don't think either of those account for someone 
turning into bones. Someone just magically losing all of their flesh. Of course, of course. There must be some character trait that you could look at that would make them, even if they're short of stature, there must have been some sort of overweening grandeur, some hubris that caused this fall into this current state. He had a questionable grin. I, I really, I really don't think either of those can account for someone just becoming bones. So let's say he was fast. Let's say he brought bones in and got out. All right. Well, that's different. This is different. Someone, these are outside bones or third party bones. All right. That's, that's different. Okay. So and perhaps the so party bones are not serious too. It's different than a man just turning into bones. Yeah, that's a, that is a genre difference because the party bones, I mean, that indicates this is a good time. I was, I was thinking this was a tragedy, but you're thinking this might be a, one of those oingo boingo dead man's party sort of Halloween shtick, something of that sort. I think sort. you're thinking second party. He was saying third party. Oh, I see. You're the fourth party, sir, technically. All right. Technically, I am. No, no, no. he so is. Technically, he is. I'm the first party. You're the, fir- you're no, the fourth I'm party. The- I'm sorry, fourth party. Yes, party. you and I are party number one. The right. Bones are party number three. And sir, you are party number four. So the fourth wall was broken to allow me to enter. I, I don't, parties and walls, should I not, I, I'm, I'm going to call the police. I'm going to call the police. This is call weird. Them. Call them. Do you I think, think police understand idea. these things any better than we do? I'm an archaeologist, sir. I understand bones maybe this person was these are for you i didn't say they weren't i said i simply don't know well you're an archaeologist yeah he had something to say you come back he's gone maybe he's in the bathroom he'll certainly want these bones this makes total sense i think i've been misreading the situation sir do you to whom the bones were delivered have some sort of overweening hubris such that you know, you've been searching all your life, you dig, you do these things to, to get bones and to have them merely placed before you without effort. Does that make your whole life up to this point meaningless? I have a confession to make. I am carrying the curse of Amkrin. Uh-huh. One of those Amkrin things. Okay. I opened the doors of the tomb, and perhaps I shouldn't have. I took a few jewels. I, I took no bones. I took a few jewels. And my guide collapsed. Uh, I'm assuming he had his own problems medically before that. But he did say as he went down, my God, the curse of Ankrum. Now, that was years ago. I have never had bones appear unsolicited before. But you are an archaeologist. Of course. And clearly you were involved in something, some, a mysterious death. Involved? I mean, if you came to me and said, you got to help me, uh, there's a pile of blueprints in my backpack. And I said, oh, that's strange. Oh, also, I'm an architect. But well, yeah, there should be a pile. Of, I say we just go about our lives. I don't know what to say. This could be one of those kind of things, like one of these curses where if you don't read, there's a lot of text to read and you just check at the bottom. I agree. And then you find you've signed up for a bone delivery service. That is. I signed nothing. I have signed nothing and I've heard nothing for four or five years years since this incident happened well i mean a lot of those curses that's consent when you break the seal of a tomb you just that's consent any who cross here have agreed implicitly to the following conditions and then there's just rune after rune after hieroglyphic and you just can't read all that right right tomb tomb blah 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 understood do i need to call the curator at the museum with that with that don't, don't call the curator don't call the curator please don't call the curator just don't call the curator all right that's not mysterious. Do I need to explain? Uh, the curator is my brother. Okay. And clearly your brother would understand something of what's going on. He can never know this happened. 
How about we just grind these down and, you know, give it to some sort of meal company and just be done with it? Can we just? That's, that's a terrible look. My official capacity as manager of this hotel is I have done all I need to do as just a guy, as just Raymond Garcia. I got to say, this is weird and kind of strange. And I don't want to be involved in the curse. I've seen the movies and I really, I really don't want to be involved. Do you serve pancakes? They do. They have a pancake bar at the breakfast. Yeah. yeah. So, well, I'm, because I've never received them, though I've marked them off, I've checked that off. I checked that off clearly on my, what would you like for breakfast today? Put it on my door. All right. Well, okay, all right. Well, all right well, I have no pancakes. That, that's that's something I, I have bones. That's something I can help with. Okay. Yeah, per, per, perhaps I we should uh, uh, retire for some pancakes and uh, discuss this further. Yes. Well, the, the breakfast bar is closed, actually. Just closed. Of course. Closes it. And at yeah, 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 almost all right. I think the breakfast bar is closed. That was the punchline. It always is, isn't it? Always closed. It's always, yeah. Always well, I think it's the thing with hotels. It's like, if you got to get up and get going, the breakfast is available. But if it's like, God forbid you want to sleep in, it's like, forget it. No. You're not getting breakfast. No. You slept till nine, sir. I know. It's like, I don't, I don't need the hotel to shame me. I'm on vacation. I'm on. <laughs> Are you making me feel bad for relaxing? Exactly. All right, before we get notes on the improv, can you tell what philosophical, philosophical, philosophy of theater thing that I'm sure you're both familiar with I was trying to weasel into, into here? Yes. <laughs> yes. And what was that? I couldn't put it into words. I could not put it into words, but it was a definite feeling received. The first philosophy of theater, Aristotle, tragedy, right? That is what theater was. And so given that Shakespeare and Shakespeare tragedy are still and the thing that we most recently had an experience with, Jay, I felt like bringing to the table this whole idea of tragedy as catharsis and what the psychological effects of it, that something in that area we could easily make some hay of. Now, it was very difficult to jump into a whirling mixer, which had different things of different directions going all over the place and make it that in any way a thematic focus. But that's okay. I've learned from Bill not to try to force unilaterally some idea I have on a scene. An overarching curse always helps draw everything together, however. Yes. I mean, that's the whole idea of a curse. It's very fate. It's very ancient Greek, isn't it? You know, this whole thing, something outside of you is pulling the strings and you have no control over. Exactly. And ultimately, tragedy is funny. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. it ain't happening to me. When you're stuck in it, but you don't have to go through it. <laughs> exactly. No. Yeah, they say comedy is tragedy plus time, but it's, it's really tragedy plus distance. And the distance could be a mere affected ironic distance. It doesn't, it could be instant distance that if you have, if you're experiencing something in an ironic way, I don't know. I use gallows humor. I try to weasel out of tragedy, even as it is occurring to me. I'm presuming, Mark, that the ancients, as I call the, the thinkers of, of long ago, understood that tragedy is more than just something bad happening. Well, let's talk about it. Jay, what do you remember <laughs> from your... I'm interested both in what they taught you in your theater background and um, what is actually proven to be useful as you've actually been performing all these Shakespearean plays and stuff through that. Like what makes for a tragedy as opposed to just a bummer? Well, overarching, life-threatening crap counts for a lot. Things that get worse, choices you have where you make the wrong choice and your life changes inexorably. And can be ruined or you ruin with those. I mean, the, the stakes are very high. Mm-hmm. The higher the stakes, the funnier it is the, or the more tragic it is. Do you think that the person 
for whom the tragedy is upon that they had the ability to prevent it? Is that a key element? Not necessarily. Okay. Although oftentimes they'll say it's a personality thing. It's something you couldn't avoid it, even though you had the choice. You couldn't not make the wrong choice. <laughs> yeah. And because we see who you are and we see why you do things. And But all of this is to say I'm, I'm sticking a cold foot in a, a hot, wet pond as you are making guesses as to what the liquid is <laughs> I'm feeling. <laughs> I feel like some of these plots are overdetermined. Yes, this thing happens because of a tragic flaw of the hero, but it's also fate. You know, Bill, as you were saying, it's also, and it may be, and it was written, somebody's announcing at the beginning of the play that this is going to happen. I'm wondering actually what the maximum number of, of potential causes, any one of which would be sufficient to bring about the tragedy, but just shove them all in the story. Well, well there's good tragedy and bad tragedy. <laughs> there's overwritten tragedy. There's tragic comedy, there's historical, pastoral, all that. I say tragedy, you know, someone can look and say, oh my God, this is a tragedy. It's not necessarily what it's tooled to be. There's a story being told that becomes tragic or reveals itself to be tragic. I don't know that the lines are hard and fast. Is it well done? Is it simply done? Was it meaning to be comic and it's so bad it's tragically comic? Tragically unfunny? I don't know. If you had like a, a village and the people are just going about their day, completely unremarkable, and yeah. then an earthquake hit, would that still be tragedy? You know, if we didn't meet the people, if we didn't understand the stakes, if we didn't understand what is being lost, is it still tragic? If to really feel it, do we need to understand who these people are and see just how precious their lives are? Does that aid tragedy? It aids tragedy, but I don't, I would say, if you said, oh, I heard about a place in Indonesia or Nepal where they experienced a terrible earthquake today and 50 people or 200 people died, you said that's tragic. Well, I'm pr also presuming the 200 people that died were not Indonesian death row inmates. What if you were told it happened at the zoo and all the zoo animals well, were yes. innocent, <laughs> in effect, they all died? Wouldn't it still be tragic? Definitely zoo animals. But if I said I watched a movie and a, a house fell on an old lady... It's like, yeah. oh, that's terrible. Well, it was the Wicked Witch of the West. The, yeah. the movie was, is it still tragic? Wicked Witch of the West, but she was a far nicer person than we have understood. <laughs> and we'll never understand because she's dead now. Yes. She was just doing her Wicked Witch job. <laughs> that in her off hours, she would help the poor. If it wasn't that, it was going to rain and she was going to disappear anyway. Yeah. You do seem to be pointing, Bill, you know, I started this up by talking about theater, but now, of course, you're talking about life. But it may be that tragedy is not just comedy plus time. Tragedy is bad things happening plus a spectator, even if it's the people involved. I mean, when I said ironic distance, that's because you are becoming a spectator to your own thing that's going on with you. You're not merely feeling pain. You're reflecting on it in some sort of pseudo-theatrical way that we often, maybe this is what living life as an art means, if you want to at least be cynical about it, is that you act as if you were performing for some, we've talked about this, Bill, the people who... Perhaps, you know, maybe internalize the values of improv too much and they live their lives as if before some sort of mirror. Sure. Although I think I understand what you're saying too, Bill, about the, the investment in the mm -hmm. characters you're talking about. If it's happening certainly to someone you know and love, or if it's happening to yourself and you obviously know and hopefully love yourself, there's a different investment. Or if you see a situation in which 
as with a Shakespearean tragedy where you see something, look at the Timon that we did, that someone who you're introduced to the circumstances, you're introduced to someone of goodwill, meaning to do good things, and the circumstances unfold to tear this person down. And you see that whether it's through hubris or through cluelessness or through whatever, they go down further. You get involved because you are wishing on them to make better choices. Yeah. We involve ourselves, invest ourselves in in people in a tragedy saying, open door number one. Didn't you see that was, you know? Yeah, totally. That kind of investment is worth a lot. But then it's a question of who's it tragic to? Sure. Uh, You're asking, Mark, about the idea of someone observing that. It does make a difference. It's like theater, like Peter Brooks saying, you know, if you have one person walking across an empty space and another person watches, that's theater. It's simply someone watching someone else exist and move through time. Labeling something, I find it particularly fascinating and more and more so the levels where you think something's going to be tragic and it reveals itself to be comic and then it goes tragic again many of us enjoy the complexities of what human life can be yeah i think that's the biggest thing about a forbidden love affair anyone can write a story about a forbidden love affair but to build it in such a way romeo and juliet to get the audience to like oh i believe this i get this this could be me that and invest, and, but invest, 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 no, invest. I think it could be you. Uh, yeah. Well, I don't have to go through a time machine. I don't live in Renaissance, Italy. There's, there's plenty of forbidden loves you could have. Yes. Right now, you and your cactus. No one understands Bill's relationship with the cactus. He carries the cactus with him wherever he goes. He strokes it in public and he is shunned. Is it's this very, an improv scene, It's very, it's very tragic. I'm, I, <laughs> it seems like... What if I were to have revealed the man of short stature to have been Rumpelstiltskin, and I knew it, and suddenly it relates to a whole other thing that's a shared myth and fairy tale, and there's a given comic element to that. I got him to say his own name, and he just... Yeah, 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 yeah. And there was, they were actually the bones of my chicken dinner from last night. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think something that comes up in improv a lot is, especially in more scenic kind of improv, is this idea that in order to invest, for the audience to invest in something... They're going to take their cues off the other players. And if the players are dismissive of what another player says, well, then the audience should be dismissive also. That's just kind of an interesting thing. You'll get players sometimes who are just kind of like, oh, I can say something really funny. Oh, I can be remark. I can be crazy. I can say something remarkable. But if all the other players don't demonstrate that they are also affected by this thing, well, then it's just not going to land. I'm sure that happens in the theater world as well. But it happens. Well, it does, except that in the theater world, we're following a script. That's a. Yes. <laughs> we play that we know it's not going to happen. Hopefully, we convince you that we don't yeah. know what's going to happen, but we knew exactly what it was going to be. We even know what we're going to say next. Yes. <laughs> you know? And you get a chance to rehearse. And if someone's not reacting appropriately, yeah. then the director hollers at him. Yeah. 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 <laughs> this is making me think of audiences who have now been trained on reality TV. That they go to the theater for the first time, like you totally knew what was going to happen, and they're like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you had a camera crew right there off stage, right? Not to take anything away from a theater show that I saw, a performance that I saw, but it was a performance of Macbeth, and there's a moment I'm not sure which act where Macbeth is eating dinner, and they start seeing the ghost yeah. of the king that he killed, 
It and he's funny. like trying to keep it together. And he's like, there's like a ghost here. And of course, the other dinner guests don't see the ghost. And Macbeth's like starting to freak out. And it's a cool moment. But it was clear <laughs> to me that they never got to rehearse it with everybody in the room because Macbeth is just apoplectic. He's just histrionic. He's just rolling. Oh, no, a ghost. You know, and all the other diners are just slowly eating. And it's just like, wait, <laughs> yeah. this guy's freaking out. He just looks nuts. And it was ended up being confusing rather than eerie, tragic. It didn't land because everybody wasn't on the same page about how do we elevate this moment? How do we all push in the same direction? It's a difficult scene. It's like made for television. It's like, oh, 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 oh you, not, you knock this out. I knock this out in 20 minutes. Give me a computer. We'll, sure. we'll kill this thing. Have there been comic <laughs> versions of Macbeth? Because it seems like the amount of potential in that of only you can see me. And I can, you know, do sort of wacky things that... Sadly, there have been more comic versions of Macbeth than serious ones, but all were intended to be serious. Yeah, I see. (laughs) Uh, Has what we have said so far, Bill, sparked in you the flame of another scene that we can begin on? Yes, but as I've said, I can't start it. The improv lesson is something I did thrice in that prior scene i will try to do it more in this next scene but as mark probably knows i'm not not a big fan of like tool belt analogies here just some tools for your tool belt and i understand and i I get why it's an easy analogy but this is probably the most tool belty kind of thing that i can give you mark and it might very well be helpful for you all right but also know this all of my tool belt tools they're real subtle you may not even notice i did this thing three times in the prior scene uh, but I'm going to try and do it even more this time to see if you can see if it'll pop out. All right. Should I give an opening line to this one? Go for it. It has to be something that I've, I've said or I had some visitors in town and I have some things that I've heard recently. It's going to go. It's going to go where it goes. Well, that's just Nicholas. He, so he's the son of my friend Tracy from college. She has a nephew that lives in Charleston and his brother-in-law, he was very into video editing. And so I was hoping that maybe he could uh, help you out. I'm wondering if he, he might be able to help you out with something. Okay, so, so Nicholas is Tracy's son who's into video editing? Well, you got to remember. So, so Tracy, she was always just kind of one of these people that she would niggle at you about every, every little thing. And then when she got married, then when they had this, they had this huge wedding and uh-huh. 14 people that I didn't even know we're like in the wedding itself. And of those, so my friend Tina had showed up only the previous year, had moved into the area. And uh, uh, I, I just, I just, I just, I understand. Just, Steve and I are working on this indie film and we're ready to get it put together. <laughs> and you said you had some, a lead on someone who could help with the editing. Is that true? Yes. So first of all, his friend, so he has about 14 dogs. And it's very hard to keep them all busy at all times. So his time is rather limited, but he could come in on Thursdays if you needed some help and he could do things from a distance. You could talk over Zoom. You could tell him what you needed. You could send him some footage, send a courier over. I may be misunderstanding. Are the dogs part of the wedding? The dogs weren't around yet when the wedding happened. You know, in fact, this gentleman was not even born at that point. How was he trained in divinity editing? Well, he did go to divinity school. It's the the video editing didn't relate directly to the divinity school, except insofar as he participated at the divinity school in the morning announcements 
and he would make a little video. Hey, Donna, 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 I don't mean to cut in. Steve and I, we have sunk our fortune. <laughs> All real savings. It's a freaking fortune. It's a freaking fortune. All right. And I've had my grandmother die. Okay. This is Finn. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And that wasn't the, all right. She was a bitch. Well, you know, I but, have an, an that's uncle. Fine. She was difficult. An uncle whose sister's by marriage's son runs a funeral home. Do you already have arrangements for that, your... That was, that, was, that was eight months ago. Oh, all right. So that would be getting pretty ripe if you didn't take care of that. Our film is not a religious film. We don't need a divinity editor. No. Religion I is only I, one of the many things that... Our film is you not do a, a religious cut, film. If you do a jump cut, that is kind of like a miracle. Don't you feel like that religious elements enter into the magic of cinema all the time? Yeah, well, with divinity, the sin is cut together with the good stuff too, I suppose. I, I just, I'm just, I'm seeing a complication here. I don't think I'm seeing, I'm we, seeing got, we got this, we got this, come, we got it. We, it's all shot. Yeah. It's ready to go. We just need somebody to put it together. All right. And you said you knew somebody. Do you know somebody? You need to remove the sin from the shots or you need to add the sin to it and layer it into each scene. So it has the proper amount. I think we can worry about that once we get in the room. Yeah. Agreed. Hmm. This is about the impact of right-wing media on small-town America, all right? There is a, this has to get out before next year, okay? I, I can't believe your grandmother died. She, she was the hottest editor we had. Well, she was old, okay? And everything had to be. things we didn't, you know, the, the auras and stuff. But having a young person in there with the spark of life still in there, you, you fellas and I, you know, we've, we lose something over time. And having somebody who's fresh and new. Yeah, having someone fresh and new. Having somebody fresh and new, you're right. Great. Do you have a phone number? Give me a phone number. All right. I got my so pen right here. He doesn't use a phone exactly. It's one of those uh. VOIP things. So you can call the normal number, which is deleted. And it takes you to the, the sort of computer voicemail system. But if you just actually, you should just text him. Because he'll respond right away with that. Don't give us a 555 number. I know that's a, that's a ruse. Five, five, five means nothing. That's not real. I might have gotten it wrong. Let me say it again. It's deleted. So just go ahead and text that right away. That's your grandmother. That's your grandmother's number. Maybe I'm more confused than I think. This, I, is, my, this is my grandmother's number. That's outrageous. Wait, did, was your grandmother Ethel? Was my grandmother Ethel? Yes, my grandmother was Ethel. Oh, <laughs> so your grandmother, I think, used to live would be the roommate. Of my cousin's second wife, who had gone to school with Tina, who was at that wedding, and had only had four dogs, though. And so I think that maybe that's the source of the confusion. That's is the, the source of the confusion. In dogs, yeah, that's between the, the seven dogs and then the four dogs. And so you got to make sure in the editing room that you put those three dogs to good use. You put them in every scene. The dogs are not part of the wedding. That's what I, I, the dogs are not part of the wedding. I think we should disregard the dogs. Get back to the editing. But for right-wing media, the use of dogs is pretty prevalent from what I understand. That that's kind of how they get you. It's like a cute little... We're done with photography. Photography is over. Oh. Okay? Help. Some of these dogs are so photogenic. You just need to include them when you're like, oh, that George W. Bush had done something naughty with the media. And then you show the dog and you're like... George equals dog or something like that. You could do a, a video graphic. Mm-hmm. Is that the kind of thing you're you're talking about with your film? 
I'm worried about this line of reasoning. I don't smell product here. I smell nothing. I don't smell. Yeah. Well, well it, Donna, thank you. May you. Have, you may have COVID. Huh? That long COVID is something you should get. You got to watch out for the short COVID. I think is a, is a hoax, but the long COVID, that's the kind that really sticks around and you got to keep fighting it every day of your life or else you're going to just run into to a ditch. We're looking for someone who can shorten, tighten the COVID, tighten the dogs, tighten the divinity. A COVID editor. Double out everything. We need a, we need an editor and an not editor. a divinity editor. Not a divinity editor and editor. All right. See, so I think for that, it's just the blood of three dogs. You get a three dog night there and you just get it all, your whole film just shrunk down to a, like a shrunken head to a worshipful individual. This is not scene. a satanic piece. This is merely a right wing extremist piece. Oh, I thought that was the it's same thing. Oh, I'm sorry. Not in, right, not right. in this case. I guess I've been misunderstanding. Yeah. Yeah. You shouldn't use my, uh, my cousin's nephew at all. Dogs will not replace us. And I think that's a good. End of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dogs will not replace us. I was trying to, to figure, I mean, other than your usual pushback on when I said something nonsensical, I was not sure what particular move. Did you have a sense, Jay, of what Bill was trying to get us to do or that he was I, Bill, or what, what I was doing? You Bill, guys was in, Bill was in a ninja form. He was in a an improv ninja groove. And there were moments where I was too busy getting out of the way of where he was going for me to actually see what he was doing. I could have lost a head. I could have lost an ear. I could be noseless at this point. Noseless? You wouldn't be noseless. Well, it wouldn't have, I mean, you couldn't smell. Come I just on. did it. I just did it. Oh, you could, noseless? You couldn't be noseless. <laughs> That's what it is. Repeating. Right. There's something, it's always an improv, you know, yes, and use what other people say. And people will take that. You know, Jay says, I'm going to lose my nose. So now I need to take like five editorial steps away and say something. Well, ever since the oceanic queen bequeathed you with the power, you know, it's like, no, you, you can just repeat, literally just repeat what someone said. And that yeah. counts. Yeah. Say it with some meaning, say it with some intensity, say it with a different feeling. And you stay in the fold. Exactly. You keep the platter spinning. spinning. Indeed. You have yes anded. Check. You've satisfied that improv thing without tipping over, risking tipping over the scene. I misheard his video editing the first time, dude, and, and got somehow divinity. I, that was great. I, I, realized, I realized I was wrong and then thought, no, go with it. <laughs> and I tried to both disambiguate and yes, and that, and to try to turn it. And that actually gave it some direction because other than a character that had trouble saying anything straightforwardly, I had nothing <laughs> That we had to just make a scene out of trying to communicate a small piece of information and not succeeding. That was the only, it was hard. And our, tra- our tragedy was we weren't going to get our freaking film done. Exactly. Yeah. And we, we had to deal with. Which someone, is tragic in its own way. We have to deal with someone who just can't talk straight. Yeah, exactly. You know, just can't give a straight answer. And it's like, that is as frustrating as Jay and I make it. If we're not and frustrated by it. His inability to help had a bad smell and you couldn't even smell anything. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Now, Mark, I know you are someone who does like to think. You're a thinker. And sometimes you can't editorialize. And what does this mean? How does this fit in? So I really wanted that lesson for you, Mark. And maybe next time you can try that lesson. Next time I can try that lesson. Wow. That, you already did. That's, that's how long my memory is. Is that long? <laughs> how long are you what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. There we go. Yes. <laughs> nice. 
So Jay, what is the, from your, your time, your improv training, what is the lesson, a very practical toolkit lesson, like the one Bill was just talking about? Is there one that comes to mind that you still bring to bear on a regular basis? Maybe it is even applicable to your reading of scripted stuff. Do, do everything. I'm, uh, I actually been working on, for my own purposes, been working on King Lear of late, heavily. As I'm marking it through, I mark through the conversation, which is all about people listening and responding to each other. Someone says, I have informed him. Informed him? Informed him? Do you think this, do you understand me? Have they been informed of this? The whole idea of picking up what someone else is saying and moving forward with it. And it requires a careful reading of what everyone else is saying. Why am I going off in one direction or another? The more it comes back to what's being given, the more it's a whole group building to something rather than one person talking for no reason or talking just to be heard, which never makes any sense. So, yeah, I think listening is the big thing. I spend a lot of time when I'm evaluating a script looking at everyone else's lines. And then on top of that, in rehearsing, and in playing, listening to how they say things. Do I believe them now? Are they fooling me with it? Are they trying to get something from me by saying this or asking a question? Are they implying something that I can take one way or the other? You know, the scene is all happening with the other person, never just with what you're saying or just what's being said, but how it's being said. So that constant folding back to what is coming at me. I'm dodging a car or jumping on its hood or it's coming for me and I'm getting in the passenger seat. But somehow that car coming towards me is an immediate and important part of what my journey is going to be. So it just relates to to everything in every scene with everybody. With Shakespeare, he gives you so much because he writes it so well. It was interesting doing the time and with you where I didn't really know the piece well, but I went through and just made note of those things as much as I could to see where things were being fed to me in the script and then would wait to see how it would actually be fed to me when we were reading it aloud. But you feel far behind because, you know, the more times you went through that, the clearer that would get. So we're kind of getting on the difference between the macro level of a tragedy and that description of, you know, it's the fall of a great man or whatever the thing is, which could be very overdetermined. And the micro level of, you know, you're saying that what makes it good is selling it basically is making well, it's it- moment to moment involvement. It's living it. It's actual living it. If someone simply reports that a tragedy happened, it's not the same, as Bill was saying, as if you're invested in a human being or in a community that's going through it. The more Joe comes down and, why are my eggs ready? You don't like eggs. I never make eggs. for You suddenly have a relationship and you know you have something to base it on the, the longer that goes. And then something important. There's a guy for you here. He's got a letter. He didn't stay, but he said, I needed to give this to you as soon as possible. And we're all like, whoa, that's Joe who yeah. asks for eggs, who doesn't <laughs> like eggs, who jokes around with his sister, who does it, you know, and I hope nothing bad happens to him. I hope that's not about the house falling down or they've taken it away from, you know what I mean? So it's investment in everything comes down to 
living life step by step by step, the same as all the improv does. But the given circumstances are the writer's choice of what they're putting forth for us to get involved with, which is the larger tragedy or comedy or yeah. whatever. I think it's easy to like, oh, well, a big fire is worse than a small fire. You know, oh, you need a million dollars. Well, that's higher stakes than someone needing five dollars. And that's just not true. I mean, we can watch any number of horrible movies, boring, bad movies with big things happening, big explosions and big things. And it's like the world is in danger. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's not, it doesn't land and none of it lands. So there's, right. there's nothing inherently more tragic, more meaningful in $5 million than in $5. It's all in the context around it. A number of years ago, uh, Spartacus was re-released which I had seen as a kid and I had seen with my younger brother. And we went back to see the new revamped everything as adults. And I thought, oh man, is this just going to be horseshit or now or is it going to be a joke or is it, you know, but what really made it land was the believable love story in the midst of it, that you cared about Spartacus and his love and surviving to be with her. Oh, not Tony Curtis. Surviving in her life. Not Tony Curtis. No. <laughs> a different love story. Okay. Um, I had thought of it as a kid. I certainly didn't think of it. Yeah. Um, but as I watched it, I thought, no, I'm completely invested. Now, there's also the love of the for Spartacus for his people who he's leading in this rebellion, the love of him for his friend, Tony Curtis. And there's the love of Anthony Hopkins dubbing in Laurence Olivier's voice in that scene that was reconstructed. But basically, it was the believability of the central love story that made this entire huge palette personal. And I tried to remind myself of that, that if the small stuff isn't as important as the big stuff and it isn't step by step real people just go oh well, this this is bullshit it's just a made-up thing they can say whatever they want they're you know, and i'm supposed to care and i don't you know <laughs> the moment you really believe in a relationship you've invested in where it's going well i wonder then if the whole thought of is this iconic if that might be a pretty juvenile thing to aim for and i think this is actually in aristotle's original theory that if you want to make it universal. So if you spend too much time on the particular, the kind of let's spend an afternoon with these characters and really get to know them and their idiosyncrasies and stuff like that's how we, I think, you know, as long as it's not done in a boring way, as long as it's done in a still an entertaining way, that's how we relate to characters so that it's great that these series like Breaking Bad or Sopranos or whatever really have a lot of time to give you time with these characters doing their little things so that when a big tragic thing comes along, then you feel like as you say, you know, that you've got personal stake investment in it. But what makes something iconic at least seems to be the idea of sort of Spartacus in the abstract. The I am Spartacus, you know, just made up of sheerly of high pitched dramatic moments. No little stuff, no subtlety with the characters. And that's what makes it universal, right? A villain. But Spartacus, can, yeah. but Spartacus isn't Spartacus without the little stuff. Mm. Spartacus is just an idea without the little stuff. So that because you're buying his love story, because you're buying his relationship to other people, because you're buying his going through the war where he sees all his people afterwards lying dead on the battlefield and knowing we did this together, they did this for me, for us, for our future. Then when someone says, I am Spartacus, all of that is what's resonant about. Otherwise, I'm Spartacus doesn't mean anything. 
I'm Spartacus means, oh, we're, let's fool him, not tell him who it really is. <laughs> yeah. you know, we're all wearing veils and whoever wants to be can say they're whoever. It's not that. It's about, and ultimately, saying I am Spartacus really means he has become all of us. His importance, his value as a single human being and what he has done and lived also now represents each and every life in this whole kingdom, this whole world of the planet Earth. You know, it's Mm -hmm. whatever it is. And then it becomes, that's when it becomes iconic. The stakes are raised to it being universal, but it had to be individual before it could become universal. You can't just jump to, so everybody said they were Spartacus, but they weren't him. You go, okay. Did that fool him? Did that work? That trick? (laughs) So you're giving me a nice response in terms of, there is a mature way of doing iconic. I was thinking of the immature way of... Are you going to do immature? Oh, like, sorry. Well, no, no, like the difference between... No, you're right. You're right. No, there's nothing. You're, you're absolutely right the first time. And the immature... <laughs> yeah, sure, whatever you say. Well, so like... You are Spartacus. Darth Vader, you know, was an icon because in those first movies, you barely see him. He only has a few lines. You don't really know his character. But then with the prequels or whatever, they try to, to stretch it out and make episode three like a Greek tragedy. And it completely doesn't work because it was so poorly done in terms of the actual dialogue and the making you care about the Spartacus. So it doesn't make it more iconic. It makes it less iconic to add more detail there. If it's just supposed to be an empty shell to which we attach our own fears of dark clad figures or whatever, like that's a way. But but what happens is then they get the ultimate value out of the return of you hear Darth Vader's theme song before you even see him and be, Oh shit. Oh, you know, and you're invested back in the whole thing as it relates to the first. Yeah. Or Alec Guinness suddenly, you know, takes off his cowl. You're alive! You know, it's all. Uh, but it's because of that larger personal iconic investment to begin with. And all they have to do is bring him back. Or you do a long landscape shot and you land on Hamill off doing something. And you go, what does this mean? Is he alive? Is he doing this? Is he becoming a Jedi? You don't even necessarily know, but you're you're invested in what the larger meaning is because he is connected to the beginnings of it. Yeah. And that's the iconic. He has become iconic because he's lasted through those things. The Star Wars prequels had a real tell not show problem. It's an interesting story and you know, political injury people say, Oh, you can't do political intrigue or all the politics got in the way. It's like, well, Game of Thrones, there's a lot of politics in that, and people ate that up. It was the fact that we were told what the politics were. We didn't get to see it. You know, Anakin does his thing and people say, wow, that was really cold blooded of you, as opposed to the audience seeing what he did and thinking, oh, yeah. I trust that. I don't know if I trust that guy. Yeah. <laughs> as opposed to, you know, if we first see Darth Vader in the first Star Wars movie, you know, he's like being really cold blooded and yeah. walking into danger, choking some guy across the room with his hand. And everyone's like, and, everyone, and again, it's that reaction of everyone else. It isn't just like, <laughs> He's doing that choking thing again. That's all everyone else is like freaked out, you know, and it's only, uh, I forgot the actor's name now. James Earl Jones. Well, James Earl Jones was the voice. The voice. It wasn't the backstory. It wasn't wasn't him with the hand. Sure. David Prowse. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. A friend of Christopher Lee, who was in all those old Hammer movies, who was always uh, that actor, whose name I I can't recall. Fine. Christopher Lee. Well, it wasn't Christopher Lee. It was Christopher (laughs) Lee's buddy. (laughs) Christopher Lee was the vampire, and this guy was the, the, uh, the uh, vampire hunter, Peter Cushing. Peter Cushing. Oh, Peter Cushing. Yes, yes, yes. Who was also in Star Wars. 
Yes, as the as in Star Wars. This was just as hard for us to connect as our second C. Well, let's wrap it up here. We've taken enough of your time. The repeating thing or the talk of tragedy both seem to be things you are already familiar with, Jay. Which of those lessons was the winner today by your light? I could not possibly adjudicate, but Bill was definitely the winner. <laughs> All right. Ah, Good job, Bill. Oh, I am. And you know why? Why is that? We'll come back to find out why <laughs> on the next episode of Divinity <laughs> is My more, It's more tragic for you to lose, Mark. Oh, man. You just wrote the episode the title, tragedy. Divinity is My Edit. That is... <laughs> <laughs> Or divinity is my editing table. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet. All right. Well, thanks so much, Jay. It's a pleasure getting to talk pleasure. to you. Some this more. is fun. Yeah. Outstanding. Wonderful. Wonderful meeting you, Jay. And, and you. best of luck to you and all your projects. Thank you very much. As I'm doing Lear someday, somewhere, I'll go, what would Bill have done here? <laughs> yeah. He would have just repeated everyone else's repeated lines. Here you go. That's not the line, Bill. <laughs> But isn't it though? Isn't it to be or not to be? (laughs) Is that the question? Not that you can smell. It's that they're going to take your eyes out. Yes. You don't always have to repeat it as an interrogative. You can repeat it as a statement. (laughs) Do you repeat it? That is is the question. You're right. That is the question. Do you have anything to plug? I have four films coming out and I don't know. Wow. I don't know where any of them are. I have a film that just opened called The Road to Galena. I have a film that's going to be opening called Songs of Revenge that I did in France. There's one Jesse Eisenberg wrote and directed called When You Finish Saving the World. And there's a new Alejandro Iñárritu film who did Revenant and Birdman and all that. Mm-hmm. But I don't know when that's coming out. They have retitled it, but I don't know what it's retitled to. So, <laughs> And they filmed my Broadway show that I just finished in mid-June, Girl from the North Country, that's been filmed and is going to stream somewhere, but I don't know where or when. So you can just say, <laughs> look him up. You'll see him a bunch, of, a bunch sure. of stuff. Some of it's new and some of it's not. Well, I learned a lot from you today, Jay and Bill. I learned a lot from you too, Mark and Jay. Thank you. And I learned a lot. Don't I'm pretend you have already. <laughs> Don't pretend. I've forgotten a number of the things that I've already remembered to forget. <laughs> and, I, and I learned them. And see. <laughs> there we go. That's supposedly how we end episodes. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed that. Our first episode of season two, starting things off with a bang. And I want to thank very much our Patreon supporters that make it possible for us to continue the show. If you want to be such a supporter, go to patreon.com slash philosophy improv, or there's a link at philosophyimprov.com slash support. And you will hear for every episode, some post game, which I'm going to play for you right now as a sample, because what Jay Sanders has to say is too good for the general public to miss out on. Here it is. So I see you were in the TV show Blind Spot. Had you known, so I know Michael Toe, who is Alcibiades with us, 
did some guest spots on that. Did you ever overlap with him on that? I know you. No. Okay. No, I didn't. But I didn't. I didn't overlap with a lot of people because I I was in the personal story. The guy, you know, the show. I've only seen some of the first season. There's the, the tattooed girl and the and her FBI partner mm-hmm. who was played by the guy who did uh, the lead in the Three Hundred. Okay, right, right, and he's an Australian actor. You just did an American. Sullivan accent. Stapleton. Right, you did this all the time. That was right. And I was playing his father, and it was a really, it was actually an interesting line. I was in it for a whole season, back and forth, but I was doing uh, my theater stuff during all that. But uh, they had a whole story about me having maybe molested and killed some young girl, but you weren't sure. <laughs> and maybe it was a lie and maybe it was a this and maybe it was that. And I, and then I didn't. And then they gradually realized I hadn't done it. And then on my deathbed, I said, Oh yes, I did. <laughs> and I was one of those. And I'm so, well, but they yeah. were, I got to watch the season one here. I see there were actual scenes in which Sully, my son, the guy playing that would, he just reveled when I would show up. You've never seen such excitement because he would go, I get to act. Because all the rest of what he was doing was running around in a car. Go, with a go, go. Running through a graveyard. And, no, no, down, down. All that stuff. <laughs> they do hours and hours and hours of that. He'd come in onto the the set in Brooklyn, the, the set of his place where I was staying with him. And he would just, he would nearly cry. He just said, I can't believe that I actually get to act. <laughs> yeah. So, but but for that reason, I didn't meet a lot of the other people who who folded through the show because they were part of all the other stuff. So I've meant to rewatch since I saw that you're in it the day after tomorrow, which is a film I have not seen for a long time. Is that one where you just had to say go 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 run from the avalanche? Right? Yeah. Or was there? I was actually I was the tearjerker guy. I was the <laughs> uh, I, I was the guy who sacrificed everything for the the gang at the last minute. I'm, um, I'm Dennis Quaid's partner and scientist, uh, in the opening scenes in Antarctica where the oh, okay. opens up and it's <laughs> me dash my hawk and, and uh, Dennis Quaid and late in the thing when we're going off to try to get, uh, to rescue Jake Gyllenhaal, who's his son in New York. He's stuck in the New York library and he's burning books to stay warm. I don't know what all that means. We're with a dog sled pulling a sled along behind us. Or maybe it's not dogs. It's just us pulling the sled and the sled. We we end up going over a mall, one of those glass topped uh-huh. malls, but we don't know it because it's all just snow on top of it. And suddenly the thing, the weight of the sled goes down and pulls me down and I'm hanging in the air with them and they can see me down through the glass and I'm going in and I realize I'm pulling them down. So I pull out a knife and cut myself down and no, Frank! all that kind of, you know, <laughs> the kind of stuff you only experience in a film. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but there are still people who come up and go, Frank, no, 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 Frank, you're here. No. And is that tragedy or that's just a bummer? Is that just, it, it was a no tragedy for me. It was tragic for me. I, I, I will say my, my yeah. son was very young when I filmed it and I had told yeah, you're not going to be in the sequel. 
No, I'm not going to be in secret. <laughs> but they haven't done a secret. But that was <laughs> the day after the day after tomorrow. But my my son was like nine years old or something, and he uh, he came to the big opening with me. They made it snow in the spring. In it was like May or something, and outside the Natural History Museum in New York, where they had filmed a section, and. I had told him all this stuff and shown him. We had done on like five different days, my whole big falling mm-hmm. thing. And I'd shown him pictures and explained how it was done and see, oh, it's so cool. And look, I'm just, I'm just a, a couple feet off the ground and I'm not really in danger there. And I didn't talk to him about the part where I was actually 50 feet in the air. And, <laughs> yeah. um, but when it came to that moment, he was sitting between me and my wife. And um, we got to that. And I'm fascinated because I'm seeing it's all about the editing. Mm-hmm. And I'm fascinated to see how they're putting this sequence together because they've established me as this good guy. And suddenly I'm going to take it for the, uh, I'm going to sacrifice myself so that everyone else can go on. And I'm watching it go and I feel this on my, I'm like, wait, 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 wait. I'm trying to watch. And Marianne was banging my arms your son your son and i looked down and he was a fucking puddle next to me <laughs> i held picked him up held him for like 20 minutes because no matter what you did to explain it to see making it iconic by putting it projecting it sure. big, yeah. to watch your father go down was just <laughs> you know and to this day he'll come across it he said and he'll come across that scene and he has to turn it off or oh, no. yeah but it's just this trigger for him of dad that'd be a, a crazy dad documentary was- to make people whose parents or loved ones were actors who had famous deaths to yeah. be like how was it what was it like seeing your old man get capped in that movie his head blown off in that movie you know, like, I always <laughs> it's like yeah. it's about time <laughs> he was asking for it. I would have done it myself. <laughs> After so. seeing him play the villain in the film, I don't even like him anymore. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's, you know, it's. Uh, I, I had a friend who wanted an editor friend who wanted to put together a Christmas reel for my friends called "Life and Death" with J.O. Sanders. That is uh, "Love and Death" with J.O. Sanders, and we go back and forth between me kissing someone to being dredged out of the Hudson River on the Washington, George Washington Bridge to this, to going out of an airplane. You know, I was just, I, there were so many different ways in which I was either side of, of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, it, they didn't make it, which is fine. I haven't noticed it. So was there something that you played the big baddie in that people would hate you in? You have a very long list of credits here. What comes to a mind? A lot of people... A lot of people strangely know Law and Order. There was a Criminal Intent episode where I played a hitman, almost serial killer, who was leading a an idyllic family life at home. But I had bodies in the freezer in the garage, and there are to this day there are people who come up on the street. Oh, oh my god! Oh my god! You're the! You're the! You're the! You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bodies in the freezer. I go, oh my God, oh But the funniest thing about that, which you'll both appreciate, was that a few years later, Vince D'Onofrio, if you remember, there was a while when he went off the air. Things were getting crazy. There was a lot of publicity about mm. it. He came back to finish the show, the last eight episodes. He and Catherine Irby, who was his partner, 
And they called me and asked me to come on as the chief of the unit. But everybody, everybody on the streets remembered me <laughs> as this horrific killer from the beginning yeah. of the second season. season yeah. Right. So I said, sure, that'd be great <laughs> to do eight episodes and finish up and to do, you know, get the series money, but know that it was going to end right there. Know that it was just a limited run. It's almost like doing a streaming series now, you know, where you and I said, but, you know, it would be great if we could find a freezer and put it in my character's office. Yeah. <laughs> so every time they're coming in to talk to me, I could just be closing it. And go, yeah. What's up? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that there would be people dying all across the world who would remember that. And Very obvious fake mustache. Just you know, yeah. uh, they would not yes. come to. Uh, they, they wouldn't come to me uh, with any kind of. They said, "No, no, no. We're going off the air. They're not going to put any more money into." I said, "Money? And you find a freezer that's a problem. <laughs> I'll bring it in." Come so on, there was now. no, there was no in-universe conceit of. You were the twin brother of the murderer. No, it was nothing like that. Nothing like that. But it was was truly hysterical. I'd been on the other Law & Order a couple of times doing things. One lawyer, one very control freak, unlikable guy. (laughs) Actually, you know, it's Chicago Med. Uh, Last time I was in Chicago, they brought me out and I played a a tent pastor. You know, these... uh, I talk like that, and it was him. I, I didn't play him like that, but it, the idea being that that's what he goes off to do, and Jesus comes because he knows you're here. All that, um, yeah. But I arrive at the hospital with this young girl, like 13 years old, bleeding between the legs, and all them. We get her in, get all this stuff, and and they ask her the questions, set her down, and say, um, "So, excuse me, sir, but we need to do a full." check up on your daughter and want to give her some rest. And the line was daughter. That's my wife. And there, and I, I, all the commercial, they knew it was in this trip. Everybody, the entire hospital staff went, Ew. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So I've done some pretty, out there off color characters and then I'll play a hero in something else and you know it's great I like I like going back and forth and back and forth yeah. makes life fun yeah. <laughs> well and I see a historic connection I I was not aware of that the odd couple too that that was even that was even a movie with, it with was a, it was a movie. Lemon and Mathau that you're right Lemon in there and Mathau. oh listen Lemon and Mathau and I was with Rex Lynn we were bikers do you know Rex Lynn? I'm seeing He's a guy on CSI who was the second. You'd know him if you saw him because he's in a ton of things. He was also in Better Call Saul, if you watch that, playing the um, the head of the people hiring Saul's wife. Yeah. There's this balding guy. Yeah. And he's just, he's a big guy and he's just all Texas. And he's in, right. That's Rex. Anyway, Rex, so Rex and I were bikers and the. Our biker broads were played by Gene Smart and Christine Baranski. I mean, two high power, multi-level, very funny and very serious, both able to do uh, comedy or tragedy and um, 
playing around in the desert with Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. <laughs> Sophia Loren came to visit the set at one point. We were off in the desert part just outside Los Angeles, actually. But it was a wacky experience. Yeah. Where you didn't, you didn't worry about whether the piece was good. You just said it just is. <laughs> mm-hmm. 1998. So this is a like way after, you know, this is a revival sequel. This is not a. Oh, yeah. Well, and they did Grumpy Old Men. Grumpy Old Men 1 and 2, I think, and then did Odd Couple 2. They just they yeah. were milking it to get the two guys back together. And yeah. they were hysterical. I mean, what a team. Anyway, but I got a lot of stories, a lot of places I've been, and this was a lot of fun, guys. Yeah, it was wonderful having you. Outstanding having you. Thank you. Excellent. Have a good wonderful, to, good wonderful rest you. of your day. Outstanding. So long. Take care. 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 Take care.